Colossians chapter 3. So if you need a Bible, hands up nice and high. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open His Word. God, we uh, just humble ourselves in Your presence. We uh, acknowledge that um, we go day after day thinking little about You, thinking little oftentimes about who You are, Your character, Your love, Your justice, Your mercy, Your grace. All of these parts of Your character, Lord, Your, your sovereignty, Your awesome power, your all-knowing, your omniscience. And Lord, especially in these times, what we love about you is that you are unchanging. That the world around us is changing so fast that sometimes, we, Lord, we feel so unstable and we find great stability in our unchanging God. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that your word is truth and it never needs revising, it never needs updating. And we put our trust in you, Lord, we learn about you through your words, so we, we're sitting here in your presence, Lord, sitting at your feet, asking you by the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Colossians chapter 3 is where we'll be, but before we get into the passage, a question, maybe you've heard it asked, uh, or maybe you've heard it said, uh, the clothes make the man. And the question is, is it the clothes that make the man, or is it the man that makes the clothes? Now, I don't know which way you would think about that story or that question, but I think we would all agree that there definitely is a connection between the person and their clothes. And if you don't believe me, if you guys could pull up, uh, I have some slides to show. Can we pull those up, Brad? All right, so without even me telling you any information, just by his clothing, what, what kind of work does this guy do? Serious work, yeah. He, he's uh, a military guy, a soldier of some sort. Next picture. What kind of, who, what's this guy? He's a cowboy, right. Next. We'll see how stereotypical you are. The first service all said nurse. I said, how do you know she's not a doctor? Uh-huh, or nurse practitioner. So she's something in the medical field, no doubt. And what does this guy do? He's a pilot, right? Next. She works where? Mickey D's, Mickey D's. Next picture. Who's that? No, that's my son before he went to bed last night. That's Jacob. Got snapped that picture? No. <laughs> so we, without even uh, me telling you anything about those pictures, you can turn them. Oh, actually, there's one more. I'm sorry, there's one more. Okay, and we, well, who's that? What does he do? Or what is he aspiring to do? UPS. And, of course, this one. Um, now, I'm betting you could figure out without me telling you that that dog didn't get up in the morning and say, now, what am I going to wear today? I think I'll go with the green sunglasses. No, because we, as human beings, uniquely wear clothing. We dress ourselves. We have closets full of clothes, and we make choices about clothes to wear. Uh, none of the animals in the animal kingdom do that, but yet we do uh, and are concerned with clothing ourselves. Now, if I was to change jobs, if I worked for UPS and decided to become Spider-Man, would that require a change of clothes? Sure it would. And maybe you've changed jobs, and in changing jobs, you've had to change your uniform, because it, 
now you're identifying as something different than you identified before. It was uh, Shakespeare in Hamlet that wrote, costly thy habit, thy habit, which is interesting connection, uh, the old word for clothes, uh, the synonymous word is your habit. And we'll talk about habits and their relationship to clothes in, in Colossians 3. But he says, costly thy habit as thy purse can buy, but not expressed in fancy, rich, not gaudy, for the apparel oft proclaims the man. The apparel oft proclaims the man. What you wear has much to do with who you are. You can tell a lot about a person from what they wear uh, about their identity. As a matter of fact, so many people try to, uh, to build an identity based on what they wear or their, their, what they wear is based on what they identify with. So if there's a change in life, oftentimes that brings a change in clothing. And we recognize that from these pictures, and we recognize that just from life in general. So just trying to establish that point, because as we turn to Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be talking about clothes, uh, but not in the sense of the material, the cotton or the rayon that we wear. We're going to be talking about clothes meaning the habits of our life, the things, the behaviors, the practices that we clothe ourselves with, the things we do. And uh, Colossians is a letter, some of you know, uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in this city called Colossae. And an epistle is just means a letter. He wrote to them to instruct them about some things. And with all of his letters, he starts out with what they believe or what they need to believe, an understanding that they should have in this letter specifically about Christ. And then as he goes through chapter 1, chapter 2, he gets to chapter 3, and all those things he discussed in the first two chapters, now he makes them very practical. Because these people are now Christians, and they're living in the middle of a culture that tells them certain things are good and bad and true or not true. And so he is straightening them out about not just being concerned with the rituals of the church, because that's what many would want you to, to think about. Many would want you to focus on uh, just doing the right external rituals. And that would make you Christian. Showing up at church, wearing nice clothes, carrying a Bible. That somehow our Christianity is expressed by the rituals we participate in. Rather than the actual habits and character of our lives. And so Paul is making, helping them and helping us on this Communion Sunday to make this distinction. Look at Colossians 3. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. If then, as also since then, if and since have a very, uh, they, this can be translated either one. The, the quest, it's not a question of if this is true. It is since this is true. Since you were raised with Christ. Now the question is, when was I raised with Christ? We all know that Christ was crucified on a cross. He died. He was buried. And on the third day, he did what? He rose again. Well, when did that happen to me? Well, when I identified my life with Christ. And I'll show you how this works. How many sports fans do we have in here? Got a few sports fans. How many of you sports fans have a favorite team? And when that team plays and they win, you say, hey, we won. When you never stepped on the field. What are you doing riding their coattails like as if you were suited up playing? Hey, we won. 
And if your team loses, you say, I don't want to talk about it. But if your team loses, you say, ah, we lost. And I'm talking about sports teams you're watching on TV, a, a favorite professional team, and you're a fan, and you identify yourself with that team. If they lose, you have a bad day. If they win, you feel great. I mean, there's this identification with them so that what they, their performance, you identify with personally yourself. Well, it's the same thing when you identify yourself with Christ, meaning when you are saved and you get baptized, that baptism is an identification with Christ. I'm saying I am joining myself to Christ. What happens to him happens to me. So when he was crucified, I was crucified with him. I say we were crucified. That means when he died, I died. But I didn't stay dead. When he rose from the dead, what happened to me? I rose from the dead, just like he did, because I'm identified with him. I'm in him. And so that's when we get baptized. That's the picture of immersing yourself under the water. It's that death of the, old, the person I used to be. And now when I come up out of the water, identifying with Christ's resurrection, raised to walk, Paul says, in what kind of life? A new life. Now the problem is that new life will never happen if you continue to do the old things that were part of the old life. And that's the transition so many people have a hard time making. You know the saying, if you always do what you've always done, what's next? You'll always be what you've always been. Our life is composed of the deeds and the habits and the practices that we engage in on a daily basis. So Paul says, we'll, we'll, we'll continue on with this, if you were raised with Christ, and you were, then seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Now, there were people in the church that were trying to get the people of the church to focus on earthly-based things. What kind of food you eat, what kind of physical clothing you wear, what kind of rituals you participate in. He says, no, those are all things of the earth. What I want you guys to focus on is the things of, of heaven, and these are going to speak of the things of Christ. So he says, for you died, verse 3, we talked about that, you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So again, that identification. And so because that's true, because we identified in his death, because we identify with this new life that he gives us, he says, therefore, verse 5, put to death your members which are on the earth. So, in, in literally in the Greek, it's mortify. There's something, he says, you have to put to death. You have to deal with in your life. Um, when you put something to death, you remove its power. When, when something dies, it has no more power, right? So, these are things, he says, therefore, you do this. You put to death your members of those things which are connected with that old life, with earthly way of thinking, with an earthly... You know, that when folks are just living for the things of the world, that produces a certain kind of lifestyle, doesn't it? You may know some. You may be one, a person who's just completely focused on the things of this world. What kind of car I drive, what kind of job I have, how it looks. You know, all those things are... They're, they're necessary things, but you can be overly focused on these things. And then there are the habits. This is what he says. What are these members which are on the earth? What are these parts of me that are earthly, and he gives a little bit of a list. Fornication, 
uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetous. Now, the word passion is not just, you know, it's good to be passionate about things that you should be passionate about. This is sort of like an evil passion, evil desire, uh, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So this first part of the list deals with things that are uh, sexual in nature. Now, I remember a guy that, that uh, I know who, when, I, when I, I met him, he was a college student and uh, did what college guys do. His focus was on um, getting uh, involved with women, uh, hooking up with them, living that studly college life, and that was considered to be a good thing. That was considered to be a manly thing to do, to have multiple sexual encounters on the college campus and go to parties and, and live that kind of life. And I think many of you would, would understand that that's the way it goes. And then this guy gave his life to Christ. And, but didn't realize that, okay, now I'm a Christian, but didn't make the connection between his behavior, the things he was living for, the next party, the next girlfriend, the next hookup. And it didn't make his, the connection between that and his new life. And so he meets a guy who begins to disciple him and in conversation tells this guy about his shenanigans in college. And the guy says, wait a second, I thought you said you were a Christian. He says, yeah, I am. He says, well, you shouldn't be doing those things anymore. He said, what do you mean I shouldn't? Yeah, that, that, that's not, you're a new creation. And that's part of your old life. That's part of, not part of a Christ life. And so there was conviction in this man's life, this young guy's life. And, and he began to seek uh, to, a change in these areas. Uh, by the way, covetousness is an interesting one. It seems to be out of place in that list, doesn't it? The word covetous means uh, desiring more. But not just desiring more of anything, specifically desiring more of things that belong to other people. That's what covetous is. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's Mercedes, thy neighbor's golf clubs, thy neighbor's fishing boat. What, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. That's adultery. Wanting the woman who belongs to my neighbor or wanting the man who is my neighbor's husband. See, that goes, that's why covetousness in there. And these things encompass what Paul calls idolatry. When you want something for yourself, idolatry is rooted in selfishness. And selfishness, selfishness is not connected to the life of Christ. So uh, this is where he starts. When, this is where the... the the culture that Paul was writing to them in, uh, sexuality. You don't realize what Christ has done to elevate the place of sexuality in our culture. We have all these discussions about uh, sexual immorality today. Uh, the issue is that sex is sacred. It's sanctified by God. And what Christ has done is return to us, return, and he's trying to return to them the sanctity of sexuality, the sacred act between a, a husband and and a wife in that context. And so these are all of the perversions of that. He says those things, he says you're to put that stuff to death. If you're into that or you engage in those things, he says put those things, that's not part of the new life. For many people, that's part of their life. That's part of an old life. Those are part of the old clothes. Because when he says, he, he goes on to say, uh, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked. He's speaking to them and maybe to some of us. You once walked in them when you lived in them. That's how you used to live. Those are your B.C. days. That's what I did before Christ. We all have that kind of life. Those of us that got saved older. 
Some, some kids, some of you guys have grown up in church, and so maybe your BC days aren't as ugly as some of ours are. But uh, many of us understand there was a way we lived when we walked in, in a certain lifestyle. But look at verse 8. He says, but now, here's the difference, you yourselves are to put off all these. And stop right there and give me your attention. He says, you yourselves. He doesn't say pray and ask God to take them away. Although I'm not arguing with that would be a good thing to do. But ultimately, he says, this is a choice you make. And the word put off is, is a Greek word that definitely speaks of clothing, of getting undressed. So he's picturing these behaviors like a uniform you wear. So you've got this uniform that's connected to the old life you used to have. I used to do this for a living. And I, and I, had, I wore fornication, sex outside of marriage. I wore adultery. I wore, you know, just pornography. I wore these things, and that's just this. this we'll get to some other things in a minute. These were like the clothes I wore, who I was. But now I'm a Christian. And so now it's appropriate for me... Some of you know, when I first started as a pastor, we started with Bible studies, and I was uh, a horseshoer, uh, not a horse shooter, a horseshoer. And it's a very dirty job. Maybe you guys have seen that show, Dirty Jobs. Well, my job made it on to the Dirty Jobs show. It's, it was a smelly, stinky job. And I would show up to Bible study, you know, dr- from, right from work, sweaty and smelly, and, and somehow people came despite that. But... Uh, my wife will tell you that my clothes, when I'd come home from work, my clothes stunk. I mean, they were bad smelling. So I'd get off my, clo- my dirty clothes, and I'd hop in the shower and get cleaned up. And then when I'd get out of the shower, would it be natural for me to go in and put, put on the old clothes from work that I had worn? Why? Because they're dirty. Now that I'm clean, what do I need? I need clean clothes. And so that's the connection here is there's the old behaviors, the dirty, the, the, the sinful habits that are unchristlike, that are not connected to God, compared to the new habits that are connected to and in conjunction with my life with Christ. So he says, now you yourselves are to put these things off. Literally, it's time for some of you to get changed. You've been changed, but now it's time to get changed. Does that make sense? Interestingly, In the early church, when you came for baptism, for the first four centuries after Christ, when you came for baptism, you would symbolically and and literally take off your clothes. They baptized uh, naked in the early early church, the first four centuries, which uh, we can understand why that is no longer the practice. That could get very, don't know if it would increase or decrease the number of baptisms, but nonetheless, that's what, I'm just telling it like it is, that's what they did. Uh, but, you know, so they would take off their clothes, get baptized naked, and then when they came out of the water, they would be given a fresh set of clothes, new set of clothes, a white robe of some sort, to signify they're now dressed in the righteousness of Christ and not in those old filthy rags of the old life. So he says, you yourselves are to literally strip yourselves of all of these things, anger, Wrath, malice. Those, so those are three things that, that all deal with the way we deal with people. When people, when we're out, we feel out of control or we want to be in control, we use, we use anger to manipulate. We use anger to get our way. Malice is just doing mean things to people. 
just having a heart to do mean things uh, to other people. Uh, so those are, the, those are the first things he lists. Then he gets on to sins of the tongue, filthy language out of your mouth. The first thing that, that uh, I gave up when I became a Christian was cursing. I used to curse like the best of them. And I think that in, I've been married now 20 years. Our son is 19 years old. I don't think he's ever heard me utter a curse word. I forget who it was that said, cursing is the attempt of an ignorant person to express themselves. Cursing is the attempt of an ignorant person to express themselves forcefully. And so filthy language out of your mouth, maybe that's one of those things that's just been, you know, I just, this is the way I talk. This is the way I get what I need to get done. This is the way I make people pay attention to what I want them to do. I just add a little expletive on the end of it. Because you know how I can say something, but when I curse, that means I'm serious. Now they know I mean business. Well, people should know you mean business without cursing. Especially if you're a Christian, the Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You should be a person of your word. You shouldn't have to add curse words for emphasis. And Paul says, that's not, if you have a filthy mouth, if you have dirty language, that's something that's not. Can you picture Christ rattling off a string of expletives to the, to the disciples? Those Pharisees, blah, 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 blah. I mean, can you just imagine that? I don't think we can. He says, do not lie to one another. And lying, you know, is com- just totally acceptable culturally, isn't it? I mean, we have uh, taken lies to a whole new level in our culture. We're lied to all the time in the media. We're lied to in advertising. Lying is just, he says, hey, don't lie to one another. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So the old man, that person you used to be, that life before Christ, you made the choice. No one begged you to become a Christian. Well, maybe somebody did beg you to be a Christian. But hopefully you came because you wanted to, because you knew the old things weren't leading you to good places. And so you said, you know what? I need a new life. And I've heard about this Christ, and I've heard he can give me a new life, and now I want to experience it. And then some people say, well, I got saved, but, but nothing changed. Well, that's your fault. God has been at work in your life. God is at work. His, part of what's in Colossians here. Is, is the mystery of Christ in you. He is in you, doing work in your life. You have to cooperate with him by getting rid of those old habits so you can be the new man. So he says, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and you can write next to deeds, uh, practices. That's what the word deeds is, the word practice. Uh, excuse me, praxis is the Greek word, P-R-A-X-I-S. And it means the art of engaging, applying, exercising, realizing, or practicing ideas. So theory is one thing, practice is another. So this means that uh, you have, that old man had certain theories or beliefs that he put into practice. You might believe that having multiple sexual encounters is cool. You might believe that drinking alcohol is fun and good and makes you cool. You might believe all of these variety of different things, and, and then you put those beliefs in practice. What we believe comes out in the way we behave, does it not, church? It does. So here's how it works. So you put off the old man with his deeds, and you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So 
we don't want you running around naked, is what, Christ, what Paul is saying here. Is you put off the old man. And it's just, so for some people, it's like all I've ever known in my life, what I learned growing up was lying. What I learned growing up was cursing. Maybe you grew up in a house with just cursing all over the place. I remember meeting a guy uh, years ago in Ukraine. He, he and I became friends for a time. He was on this, this uh, mission trip, and he had just recently been saved. He was an ecstasy addict and an alcoholic, and he had just gotten saved and had renounced. He'd given up ecstasy, given up alcohol, and we were talking on this trip, and he was telling me how his whole identity was wrapped up in, in doing drugs and partying. And he said, you know, I don't, I'm still trying to figure out who I am without those things. I've done that. For, my whole identity is built around this lifestyle. And now that I've given those up, I don't know who I am. And so this is what Paul is addressing next here. He says, you've put on the new man. Well, what do I do if I can't lie? If I can't curse, how do I communicate? If I can't be involved sexually with, with anybody I want to, I can't fulfill those things, which they would have said was part of being, you know, just that's what you're supposed to do. That's what your body's for. Then what am I supposed to do? He says you put on, you get a makeover, an extreme spiritual makeover. You put on the new man that is made new in knowledge. That's experiential knowledge. That's a certain, that's the word epigenosis, which means Knowledge that is gained by experience. So it's one thing for me to sit here and tell you about these things. It's another thing for you to go out and actually do it. You will be made new when you take what you learn here and you put it into practice. That is when you will actually be a new person. Other than that, it's just theory. If you want to be made new, because if you always do what you've always done, what will you always be? what you've always been. Now Christ has died so you could be new. And so what are those new things? He says, you're renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Who's that? That's Christ. That's who is creating you. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So this transcends whether I'm Democrat or Republican, whether I was born in Asia or America whether I identify with this or that, whether I'm male or female. These are behaviors that transcend. It's, it's, it's not male clothes and female clothes, behaviorally speaking. It's, it's the character of Christ. That's what God is forming in you, the character of Christ. So it transcends all that. That's, it's Christ in you and in me. Therefore, verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, so because, again, because these things are true, he says, therefore, as the elect of God. Look, if you're sitting in here this morning, and you are, because I'm looking at you, you have to know that God chose you. He chose you before you did anything to earn his love. And you forget that. Because we're so busy trying to earn people's love. We're busy trying to wear the right clothes and say the right things and be in the right places so we can get people to love us. And the Bible says that you are already loved by God. He chose you. Our God is crazy because a lot of you I wouldn't have chosen. I'd be like, no, nah, no. Nah. But then you wouldn't have chosen me either. Steve, no, nah, I can do better than that. But God chose you. And he chose you. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, that's who you are You are holy 
and beloved. You are His. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart. We talked about the, the bride waiting for her groom. When two people get married, they are holy to each other. That means she has chosen Him to the exclusion of all other men on the face of the earth. And He has chosen her to the exclusion of all, of her women, all other women on the face of the earth. They are holy, set apart from everyone else to one another. And so you are holy in that God has set you apart for himself. You are not like those other people. You are God's. You are not like the guy you work with or the woman who, or people that don't know God. You are holy and you are what, gang? What's it say next? You are loved. You are loved already. Already. He didn't wait for you to get your act cleaned up, didn't wait for you to do lovable things and to be lovable like that little picture of the dog wearing that cute little outfit. Listen, you have to know this because sometimes people think that God is just out to get them. But you are holy and beloved. And therefore, when you put your clothes on, when you put your spiritual behavioral clothes on, he says, therefore, put on tender mercies. How many of you have a King James Bible in here? It might say bowels, bowels of mercy. Is that what your, does it say bowels of mercies in the King James? It's because for them, the, the intestines we're connected to the deepest seed of our emotions. So if you, you would say, I feel it in my gut. To feel mercy for people. Not, not to be malicious toward them, but to be merciful to people. Put on, put, you want to put on something? That, this is a choice. When you get up in the morning, you choose what clothes to wear, right? You look in the closet and go, hmm, let's see, what should I wear? For me, it's like, what's the least dirty? We guys give it the sniff test, right guys? Give it the sniff test. If it passes the sniff test, it's good for another week. I'll get counseling later. You choose what you want to put on. Look, the church, here's why I chose this passage today. Because we need each other. We're in a world now that is getting darker and darker and farther away from God. And, and the challenges, attacks that come from outside, those things unify us, don't they? I mean, think about 9-11, the attack on New York City. That really unified us as a nation, unified the people in New York City. They didn't care about color or race or where you lived. They were all unified against this external attack. External attacks are good for the church. It's internal attacks that divide us. When Satan gets a foothold through unforgiveness, through maliciousness, through filthy language, through blasphemy, speaking evil about one another. That's when these attacks come. And we're sharing communion today, one of the most unifying practices we have. And so what my heart is for the church is that by putting on the new man, by putting off the old behaviors, by thinking about these things, by choosing to engage in these things, tender mercies, kindness, kindness toward one another. That's a choice. You can really not like someone and still be kind to them. You know that? But for a lot of people, it's hard to differentiate. It's hard to separate those things. I have to treat people based on how I feel about them. No, you don't. You can separate the person and what they've done from how you treat them. You can be kind to someone who's hurt you. Doesn't the Bible say to love your enemies? We don't necessarily feel love for my enemy. 
but we can still choose that we see them broken down on the side of the road with a flat tire. We can still choose to say, hey, if that was me, I had a flat tire, I'd want someone to stop and help, and you can choose to help them. That's kindness. Humility. Oh, boy. It's time for communion. We've got to get rolling here. Humility. Uh, this is another thing to put on. Humility. Uh, that's actually low self-esteem. Isn't that countercultural? Is, don't we live in a culture that's all about high self-esteem? How do we develop high self-esteem? Well, we compare ourselves to people who we think are less than us. I feel better about myself when I look at that moron down the road. I'm glad I'm not like him or those people in jail or this or that. And we, that's not how you develop self-esteem. You develop proper self-esteem by comparing yourself in the face of the living God. You compare yourself to God, and all of a sudden, you don't think so highly of yourself, do you? It's a very humbling experience to get in the face of the living God, and that's, it just it humbles you because He is awesome and perfect and powerful. And you get, you get in the Bible, and you get it before God, and you say, oh, man, I am so unworthy. I'm, I'm so... I do the same stupid things over and over. I have the same, ah, oh God, I don't know why you would want anything to do with me. And that's humbling. And so when we deal with one another, we put on humility. Not thinking that our way is always right or we're much better than everybody else in this church. You put on meekness. You put on, here's a great one, long-suffering. Don't we need that in the church? That means to have a long fuse. Rather than anger or wrath, we put on long-suffering. We're patient with each other. Man, the world is so impatient with me and with you. When we come here into church, we need to be patient with each other because we're slugging this thing out together, aren't we, gang? Be patient with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, air it out on Facebook. No, that's not what it says. I'm sorry. Be, be, oh, be long-suffering. Verse 13, bearing with one another. We are committed to our relationships with each other. Now, I remember talking to a guy uh, from the, a, a past generation, uh, married for 50 or more years, and he said, I remember, Steve, when we, we're from a generation that when something was broken, we fixed it. We didn't just throw it out and buy a new one. The generation now, when something's broken, they just throw it out and buy a new one. People are like that with relationships. If the relationship was broken, I'll just throw it out and get a new one. But the Bible says to bear with one another, to put up with each other. We gotta, you guys got to put up with me running late. Our, it's going to be communion still. We're going to be here a little bit long today. And you got to put up with that. You have to be gracious to me because we have to be gracious and put up with you too. Putting up with one another. Uh, or, or bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And above all these things, so your overcoat, above everything that you're wearing, all these things is to put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So love covers a multitude of sins. So with all that being said, I'm going to invite the uh, folks that are going to serve communion to bring and begin to serve uh, the communion. As the elements come around, just hold them. Uh, we'll partake together. Uh, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are still living the old life, uh, then I invite you to uh, take this time to examine. Examine yourself. Not to condemn yourself. That's not the point. The point is to say, hey, maybe I'm here and I'm examining my life and I'm going, you know what? I'm still doing a lot of the stuff that, that I used to do. 
If you can look at your life and say, you know, I really haven't changed much, then thank God for His grace. He's so gracious. But don't ever lower the bar for yourself. Don't ever lower the bar. When we talked about being the bride of Christ, and as the communion comes around and we're discussing and thinking about these things, I want you to think of of how important it is to that bride to look her best for her husband on that wedding day. And even after years of marriage, it's easy to forget. But don't you, ladies, don't you still want to look good for your, those of you who are married, don't you still want to look good for your husband? I want to please him. And it's not because he compels me, not because he's ever told me I look bad or, or look, you know, I'm ugly or anything like that. He doesn't have to say a word. But this is what love does. Love says, hey, I want to I be my best for the one who's loved me and given his life for me. So take this time. Nick's just going to sing a song while you guys take the time to examine yourself. If you don't know Christ, I want to invite you to know him today as your Lord and Savior. A new life can start for you today. You can look at this list of things and say, I'm done with lying. I'm done with sexual immorality. I'm done with living that life. I need a new life. And I'm telling you, here's the place. The place is in Christ.